0: Welcome to our Kids in Mind. I'm Jane Gilmore.
1: And I'm Bettina Honan.
0: We wrote the incredible Teenage Brain book because we wanted to make neuroscience accessible to adults supporting teens so that the young people in their care could have a better future. Bettina and I firmly believe in the power of conversation. As Dan Siegel said, conversation is a sorting space for ideas. And with that in mind, we've reached out to other JKP authors and put our shared passion for young people's well-being at the heart of our conversation. In each podcast episode, as we marinate in our guests' expertise, we build bridges between our respective books and debate different approaches. So join our conversation as we dip into some incredible books
1: about young people. And today we are so excited to be talking to Karen Traceman, clinical psychologist, trainer, and author of numerous books. She is also the director of Safe Hands and Thinking Minds Training Consultancy Services and is a highly sought after speaker. Karen was awarded an MBE for Outstanding Services for Children and was on the Queen's 2020 Honours List. She specializes in the area of trauma and has produced some incredible resources to help us understand trauma and support organizations and systems to move towards becoming trauma-informed and responsive. So Karen, a really warm welcome to our podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So let's get started. In in our work, we're really passionate about sharing teenage brain science with adults caring for teens and strengthening uh, relationships between adults and all young people, I wondered just in a few sentences if you could describe your latest resource, which is a treasure box for creating trauma-informed organisations. It's two incredible volumes, and um, just say a little about who it's aimed at and why you wrote it.
2: Yeah, so they are they are massive. Um, they're two kilos in weight. they're in colour they're A4 Um, but in essence um, so I'd written the therapeutic treasure box um, which was kind of direct work tools for practitioners a few years ago Um, and in recent years I wanted something that was more for teams systems organisations about okay we've understood some of the theory about trauma but how do we infuse and embody this into the fabric of the organization so what does that look like from the language that we use how we do assessments our physical environment um but also looking at things like what does that look in practice what does that look in a prison or in a school or in a hospital and a lot of people were talking about the values of trauma-informed practice. So like safety, as an example. But there was very little that was like, okay, so what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, Are we talking about relational safety, cultural safety? So I kind of wanted to create a book that was for practitioners, but also for leaders, for managers, for policy makers, for change makers, to really think about what does this look like? And how can we take the ideas and actually embody them and infuse them into our organizational structures to create, um, so that our services are sort of brick parents and secure base and safe haven? How do we actually create environments that are facilitative? So it really is looking at tips and tools and strategies, but from an organizational perspective. And then I've got contributors from over, um, 40 different contributors from over 10 different countries in Africa and Asia, South America, um, to really look at what do we mean from an organizational level, organizational trauma, um, really thinking about recruitment, induction. So all of those sort of different bits that make up an organizational culture in essence.
1: Amazing. I mean, it is such a practical resource. And it was also, didn't you go on, you had a Winston Churchill Fellowship, is that right? So you travelled?
2: Yeah, that was absolutely phenomenal. If anyone hasn't heard of the Winston Churchill Travel Fellowship, it's like, the UK's best kept secret. It's phenomenal. Um, so yes, it's basically a fellowship that you can apply for. Uh, you don't need to be a qualified practitioner, anyone, there's ones in dance, music. Uh, I've got a friend who did one in Eco Bricks. Um, but in essence, <laughs> I applied and I was awarded a fellowship to go to America. Um, and I went to New Zealand and Australia to learn about best and innovative practice from an organizational level so I went to 14 Amazing. different cities across America over three wow. months um, and basically went to visit all different organizations and to talk to them and to learn about best practice and then I took all of that um, and I'm also a consultant to 90 organizations I took all of that and sort of amalgamated
0: that into the books incredible so impressive. And I love the way that you were talking about it, trying to explore what it means to be a safe environment. What does it mean? You know, can I tell if I walk in the room, can I tell I'm in a safe environment? So it's absolutely, you know, that operational definition of what these words mean is, you know, it's, it's a very, very you know it's a required piece of information that we need to share around organizations absolutely it's
2: huge and as we know it's that difference between feeling and being or that difference of feeling and actually infusing it into how we are and it's Mm. that sense of I think there's a lot of buzzwords um but actually how do you translate them into what people feel like if the building could talk what would it say um and we use words like safety, but what does that look like from cultural safety, from relational safety, from moral safety? And it's that whole Maya Angelou, isn't it? People forget what you do, forget what you say, but how people make you feel. Um, yeah. And so I think it's, yeah, taking the concepts and actually moving from
0: knowing to doing and being in, in a way. Yeah, beautifully put. Well, Karen, I have to say, I think the treasure box is so well named. You know, as you say, it's colour, it's extensive, it's dynamic, a little bit like you, I think. It's got that, you know, dynamic sense of energy, which is just so appealing. It really is an extraordinary tome, and congratulations for having produced it. Um, when we wrote the Teenage Brain book, we distilled a sort of action plan for communicating with young people. Especially when emotions were running high. So, we tried to pull together some of the ideas that we talked about in previous chapters um, and make a a sort of 101 about communication. So, if you had to do something similar for the treasure box, what would the gist be, do you think? Oh, it's a tough question. It is
2: a tough question because it's how do you take so much complexity and multi layered and put it into sort of a list, which in some way I kind of go against because. I'm very not putting things into small ways. But I think that's probably what I would do, actually. I'd probably do 101 ways myths about trauma-informed practice um, or 101 sort of ways um, of uh, what not to do in some ways. Um, So I think that would be quite cool, like myths and dispelling myths. Like trauma-informed practices this just being sweet and kind, or trauma-informed practices just putting a fruit bowl in a reception area um but on the flip side, I could also do um if I really could I'd like to do like um a hundred and one ways to use language to influence change, um that would be a pretty
0: cool. That's interesting. Uh, I, I like the way you've chosen 101 because you can really, you know, you've got some good, you've got good breadth there. To, to, <laughs> I wondered if you would go for the four R's, you're, you know, you realise, recognise, resist and respond, which I thought was a beautiful way of pulling together some of the ideas. But you've got 101 ideas. There's more there, isn't well, there? Well, that was going on your 101, <laughs> so I was just making your inspiration. <laughs> but
2: yeah, <laughs> don't get me started because I'll come up with about a million 101s. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I loved the language chapter. I thought that was so, so important. And I, and I think, you know, we the way in which we use language, we're used to using, we don't really think about it, but just pointing out some of the small things that you pointed out. I think people really want to get things right, and they don't know what they don't know. So it really kind of lifted the lid, um, lifts the lid on that, I think. It's really important yeah
2: it's crucial and it's free <laughs> you know that's the thing with mm. language it doesn't cost a penny and yet it can shape or shatter like it's so influential and, and when I train that's my favourite day of training that I do
1: Um, So in our books, we talk a lot about emotions um, and particularly about how anger can mask lots of different emotions in children and young people. It's often easier to be angry, isn't it, than to show some of the more vulnerable emotions. And we've got a kind of illustration showing that one of the things that we loved about your book was the illustrations that communicate a lot of really complicated ideas very succinctly. So could you say a little bit about Um, why you think that's important and kind of how that helps to have those visuals alongside the text.
2: Yeah. So firstly, just to echo, obviously, I think we're really aligned on that as anger, as being a bodyguard emotion and, and married to fear and sadness and shame. And so that's a key bit from both of our books that I think is really aligned um, so the illustrations is to me one of the most important bits. Um, and I am a huge, anyone who comes on my training is like every slide is a picture or an image or something. Um, partly I am a really creative person. My grandma was an artist. My mum parented me in a very creative way. Um, but for me, I think not having illustrations doesn't model the model. So if I'm saying to people, Trauma is a multi-sensory experience. Our interventions need to be multi-sensory. We need to think about how we communicate. We need to think about colors. We need to think about how we make people feel. Um, And brains in pain can struggle to learn. And how do we condense it? And we need to think about language. If I don't present that in my books or how I am, I'm not modeling the model. So for me, I'm a very visual person but I think it's how do we take some of the jargon out of things? How do we find ways to really help just also have a visual memory that helps people's muscle memory, that they can look at it and it might take them down a a time hole to that memory when you spoke about that or to give a springboard for playing with that metaphor. um, So for me, using imagery is just a phenomenal way to make and also it crosses, you know, boundaries. It's for people where English is a second language. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a huge, huge believer, and it's how I learn best. You know, I get bored with text mm. over and over again. Um, same as I use masks and puppets, and so yeah, um, I think I love how you do that. And for me, that's a massive part. And just it's almost like a refrigerator note, isn't it? It brings it alive, um, and it. So
1: yeah, yeah. massive part. Yeah, and you have some fabulous kind of phrases as well. And um, I just think it's so wonderful because those are things that people can get hold of, can't they, and kind of take away. And just to as a reminder, because it takes a long time to learn things, to learn new ideas, to learn a new way of, of communicating, a new language in a way. You know, it, it doesn't happen instantly. So I think those are so valuable
2: that's the bit that sticks isn't it sometimes the catchphrases um it's just those little golden nuggets that just helps people to absorb that information a little bit more
0: and even the way you use the text and I think I'm taking on board what you're saying about you need visuals and, and texts obviously to support those visuals but the the way that color is used and your idea about spotlight on a particular issue is so effective because you know if I open the book anywhere I would understand a key issue. You know, everything is very clearly communicated in an immediate way, which organizations need. They're so busy, you know, who's got time?
2: Mm. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think it's super impressive.
2: Completely. And also that was, uh, and Jessica Kingsley and my, you know, Steve at Jessica Kingsley, we had so many discussions around this and I was very pushy, I suppose is the word, um, about the format because I wanted the, I was like, you can't do a book about trauma-informed practice if the book itself doesn't feel trauma-informed. You know, it has to break down complex information. It has to leave someone feeling cared for and nurtured. It has to, the book itself has to Mm. actually, you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. So I want the book to embody the values. So yeah, I very much was writing it constantly thinking, how would it feel read this book what would that be like being a busy social worker um so I'm glad that reflects
0: (laughs) it certainly does um we've got a new book um and our new book is called how to have incredible conversations and it's designed to be used by adults and children together so they can start meaningful conversations and so strengthen the relationships and in it we talk about the importance of um Discussing difficult experiences and distressing emotions, in particular, so-called affect labeling, as Matthew Lieberman would describe it, and I'm sure you're aware of the, the some beautiful brain science talking about the importance of naming these challenging emotions because it it can help recovery in some instances. So um, how to have incredible conversations is not aimed at um, families and trauma particularly. Um, But I think there are similar principles to having hard conversations, whatever the context. It's a good well-being habit to get into, is it not? So um, how would you describe the Treasure Box's approach to starting these uh, hard conversations about difficult experiences?
2: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because obviously it is more of an organisational book, and so it's not in the it's a similar but maybe different to those conversations. But I think there is lots of commonality. So you were talking about naming. We know Dan Siegel's catchphrase, "Name it to tame it." um, In DDP, didactic developmental psychotherapy, connection before correction. So I think the book often talks about how can we address people by being curious instead of furious how do we honor why fences have been put up how do we acknowledge it's not what is wrong with you it's what's happened to you so how do we create somewhere where we help people to feel regulated and how we start and how we end that we see people coming as humans how would we want to be spoken to Um, that we try and talk to people with empathy and compassion to not send people down a chain of pain or a memory time hole or to bring up their shield of shame. Um, But how are we reciprocal and relational and thoughtful in how we speak? But also, I suppose, a big thing is mindful about language. So things about softening language, tentative language, um, being curious about what do you really mean when you're using that word? What does that say? What does that look like? I don't have an emotional x-ray, that curiosity. Um, Yeah, I could go on, but I'll stop there.
0: I mean, uh, Mm it's very interesting because, of course, the book is, and and one of the wonderful, unique selling points in the book is that it's aimed at organisations which, you know, need, need, need and want to know how to be trauma-informed but as you're speaking I can really see the similarities between an organization and a family system for example and you you list the similar you know the vulnerabilities and the protective factors for being trauma-informed and they may well be a family or they may be you know a department in, in, in a social work um, organization so you know putting well-being at the, at the top having safety having trust having relationships at the center Whether it's a system in a family, whether it's a system in an office block, whether it's a social work department, it's all saying the same thing. It's all about relationships, as Bettina and I say many (laughs) times over and over again. I think that's the bit people miss a
2: lot of the time. And that's what my training was on today was organisational trauma. And I was trying to help people think about if we see the organisation as a person, if we see the organisation as a client, If we saw a child who was dysregulated or if we saw a child who was dissociating or hypervigilant, a system can be dysregulated or hypervigilant. So absolutely the principles, and I suppose that's the difference with being a therapist or a practitioner, if you can take those principles that you would use in one-to-one and you just apply that to the organisation or the system. So completely there's massive echoing parallel processes within that.
1: Yeah, I mean relationships is something that Jane and I <laughs> talk about all the time. I'd say it's fundamental really to to the work that we do and providing you know, providing this environment of safety. Because if you want to be able to go off and explore the world and to learn and to grow, safety is fundamental. I know it's you know it's part, so much a part of what you're talking about as well, um, in all of your books. One of the one of the fantastic things in your book that that um, we noticed is the idea of a limbic whisperer. Can you just say a little bit about about what a limbic whisperer is and the the importance of it, you know, in in relationships and schools and organizations?
2: Yeah. So I suppose there's so many different elements, isn't it? What it's like in a therapy room, what it's like organizationally, what it's like in supervision. Um, But in essence, limbic is the emotional part of our brain, as we know. That's where our amygdala is, which is our fear center, our inner alarm clock. Um and so when someone is under threat or under fear or feeling dysregulated we know that some people might have a limbic hijack so the emotional part will poof and sort of might spill or flood out or we see emotional dynamite or we might see that in different ways someone might shut down dissociate whatever that might be and being a limbic whisperer is how do we find ways how do you find ways to help whisper and be calming and anchoring and grounding and soothing either to yourself or to other people. Whether that is co-regulating in a relationship, whether that is how you start and end a team meeting with a regulating activity or grounding activity, whether that is naming it to tame it, whether that is with your body, with your tone with your feeling whatever that might be it's how do you notice and use your body your mind your voice your affect to join someone um, within that place it's kind of how can you be the rainbow in the storm or certainly not bring a storm to someone's rainbow or how can we think about what someone's marinated in and that emotional contagion and how we're able to bring how we leave people feeling so how do we help whisper and come from a place not from fear or try and be in our thinking brain when someone else might be in their survival brain and sort of find a way to meet each other
1: it's wonderful it's such a great um kind of metaphor I mean yeah and so important for parents I feel like that's you know what we're doing in our work with families all the time and of course in the parent-child relationships it's really hard because it's very very uh stressful for a parent to see their child in pain and so it can be really hard to regulate yourself in that moment yeah it's a similar kind of thing yeah but it's
0: it's really strikes me that that discussion about how to manage a team meeting is actually a way of you know it could be applied to a family discussion you know here i am and i'm going to help you figure out this emotion or maybe even have you know' i I use this word broadly a ritual at the beginning at the end of a meeting about saying this is we're containing this this is at the you know this is the end of um our coming to coming together and it's something actually we we talked about in in the new book because we talk about having a ritual at the end of your conversation, whether it's been a fun one and you're rolling around laughing or whether it's been a really distressing one. have something that you say to each other, we were here together and now and we've done well and good for us and now we're stopping our conversation and i think that's really it really it really chimes with me to hear you say that um, and embed those ideas into a team meeting or an organization because it's as valuable and you're you're impacting in exactly the same way as you might be doing in a in a relationship in a family completely
2: and i always say you know how do you leave a heart print Um, And what's the primacy effect? And what's the recency effect? How are you starting and how are you leaving? And if we do check-ins, for example, how you do a check-in in in team meeting or supervision in a trauma-informed way, as an example, not only does that support the person you're supervising or your team who are working in traumatised complex systems, but they're going to have that modelled to then go and do it with families or children But how we might work with a parent or a carer when we understand that they might have not experienced co-regulation in childhood or they might be under a huge amount of stress themselves and not have someone for that is the same as my fellow psychologists or social workers or police might also be feeling full up. And I always say you can't be mindful if your mind is full. So how we're helping parents is the same as my team. If I want my team to nourish and nurture and be kind and compassionate to people, I need to be kind and nourishing and nurturing to them because, you know, we treat people how we want to teach them, don't we? If we want people to be able to be calm and thoughtful, we need to be calm and thoughtful.
0: And it really it really makes me think about the discussions that we often have um with you know whether it's in our clinical practice or whether it's writing our books about the power of modelling. You don't have to say anything about what you're looking for just do it mm. <laughs> and that is the most powerful thing that you can do as a parent but certainly it's true for organizations and it's really striking the way you're describing it and also thinking about the ripple effect of that because if you can model that compassion and you know trauma-informed capacity you're colleagues and your colleagues clients will have the benefit of that same understanding and that compassion so it really is a very efficient intervention as well as an effective one it's huge
2: isn't it and Kaulo always says I love the quote he always says the world doesn't get changed by your opinion it gets changed by your example And I think that's a massive Mm. thing, isn't it? How you're modeling the model, how what people are seeing and feeling and being marinated in, that's how we leave people feeling far more than the tools or the strategies or anything else like that. So yeah, very much. But I think we're much better at doing it therapeutically than sometimes organizationally.
1: Yeah, and I remember when I first did my training, um, just being so struck by the importance of supervision and also feeling so... um, you know, kind of lucky in a way to be in a profession where that is recognized. And, you know, just thinking about schools and teachers having to deal with 30 children all from incredibly diverse backgrounds and having no place to go and sit and reflect on that I mean, I it, that struck me for a long time. And you you talk in your book about supervision and, um, you know, its value. And that's what we do with parents as well. I mean, supervision, it's a funny term to other people, but it's just an idea of let's go and think about what does this trigger for me? We're all humans. What does it do to me when that child does that? And how can I use that, as you say, not only to protect and look after yourself, but it's actually much better for the person that you're looking after as well
2: it's huge and you know today I was with teachers that's who I spent my day with and I just think it is unbelievable in this day and age to have people facing professions who not even just people what's it like for our business support and all sorts you know as clinical psychologists we are very privileged it is part of our absolute essence but to not have that space is is unbelievable. And in social work, which is where most of my work is, often in social work, it's snooper vision, it's line management, it's deadlines, but it's not super vision. It's not thinking, breathing, enhanced, really thinking about my role, what this means to me. Am I going down a time hole? How does this link to theory and practice? It's more, have you done this deadline? Have you done that? Have you done this? Um So yeah, I I think it's quite unbelievable that in 2021, we still have um, professions who don't have a culture. It's that react instead of reflect, isn't it?
0: It's it's, yeah, Mm. police, all of those. Well, I'll tell you what, Karen, you you talked about it being a privilege and it really has been a privilege. So we've come to our last hurrah question. We call this our last hurrah because it's Mm -hmm. our final question. Um, I think Bettina would agree with me if I said writing a book is a learning experience. Um, you learn about the literature, of course, and the science. That's a privilege. But also we learn about ourselves, the process of who we are as a, as a writer. Um, what was your takeaway experience or learning point for having written The Treasure Box?
2: Oh, so much. And it's interesting because obviously it's my twelfth book. So I've done I've now been through this wow. writing process quite a few times. Um this is the um this is the book that I was most anxious about. This is the book that I was most worried about. This is the book that I had the most sleepless nights about, possibly because it is the most controversial in some ways it's talking about traumatized systems there's quite a lot in it about racism there's quite a lot about privilege power um authority um it also is the first book i've had contributors so to have 40 contributors right um so i learned loads i learned loads about um structure um and literally the writing process about Just I wanted people who contributed to feel trauma informed in the process that I was doing it. So I really thought so carefully about how I asked people, how I gave any edits, everyone got a book paid for by me um, that said thank you, you know, really wanted it to feel like that. Um but there was loads of stuff I learned during it. So from their contributions of fields that I don't work in, so I had people like judges, right, and dentists and all of that stuff um I always want to do more so if I could do it again that'd be volume three um but I think there was (laughs) lots of things about um I did a huge amount of research so from a literature point of view just learning new things about organizational theory about dynamics um there was quite a lot of interesting things about how much personal disclosure do I put in um, about my own cultural background about my own physical health and so that brought up lots of interesting dilemmas um wanting to do something that was thought-provoking and reflective but also creative and so how to constantly go through and rework and how do you do a chapter summarizing trauma when I've got several books just on that um so yeah it was it was an interesting um it was an interesting learning experience but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But as I said it's kind of the one that I was most worried about out of all of the other ones.
0: Well your enthusiasm really shows in the book and what I what I is I'm struck by as I listen to you is that your your ethos about weaving ideas into day-to-day living is apparent in the way that you wove experiences and professions and cultures Uh, and experiences across the board Mm. and across the lifespan in fact into the book and so it speaks volumes pardon the pun about (laughs) your capacity to do that it really is a wonderful achievement so we're we're Mm. incredibly um uh what's the word admiring what's the what's the right word bettina this is how bettina helps my brain (laughs) we admire the the achievement uh because it really is a magnificent
1: one Yeah. And thank you so much, Karen, for coming and bringing your wonderful um, enthusiasm and wisdom uh, to the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today.
2: More than a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for the amazing work and contributions that you're doing as well. So thank you.
0: In the next episode, we're taking an optimistic but realistic look at neurodiversity. We discussed the challenges of anxiety in ASD with Tony Atwood, eminent clinical psychologist specialising in autism spectrum disorders, and the author of the best selling book, The Complete Guide to Asperger's Syndrome.